Welcome to the Teach Strong podcast. My name's Sam Hart. I'm a primary school teacher on a mission to help school staff discover truly effective approaches to well-being. And this show is a platform for me to bring you the knowledge and experience of real experts who can break down the research and the tools that we can apply to our everyday lives to feel happier and healthier. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Jimmy Whiteman, founder of Delve Deep Meditation. Jimmy is a meditation teacher with years of experience helping people enjoy the many benefits of a meditation practice. If you're a regular listener to the show and you follow me on social media, you'll know that I have a meditation practice and often post about why I believe this could help educators and children and and really make a difference in, in many people's lives. However, I understand that the word meditation may be off-putting to some. To others, they might be unsure exactly what it is and how to approach it. So I was really happy when Jimmy accepted my invitation to come on the podcast to explore meditation further. I asked him what meditation is and what it's not, how it differs from a mindfulness practice, the different types of meditation, the benefits he sees in people every day who have a meditation practice, those people that he's taught, and also the the differences he's noticed in himself as well. His tips for getting started, plus much, much more. So let's get started. Here's my conversation with Jimmy Whiteman from Delve Deep Meditation. Enjoy. Welcome, Jimmy, to the Teach Strong podcast. Hi there, it's great to be here. No, thank you so much for offering your time this afternoon to come and chat to me about a topic that I'm really interested in. I've you know, been on a journey um, with meditation for the last few years, but I love talking to people about this topic and to hear their kind of perspective and to find out you know, if there's any way my practice can be, um, you know, if I can change anything about my practice and, and what can what message can we put out there to the listeners as well. So I thought I'd start with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek question, which is, you know, if someone is looking at someone meditating, they are closing their eyes and sitting completely still. Well, isn't that just a complete waste of time? What would you say to them? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> To think of it that way is a bit like thinking of, if I said to you, going to the gym is a waste of time. All you do is you go there and you pick up a weight and you put it down and you pick it up and you put it down. What's the point? Because on the surface, it looks a certain way, but under the surface, something quite radical, quite special is happening. And it's the same with meditation, really. You look like you're just sitting there with your eyes closed. Physically, nothing's really happening. But under the surface, in the space of consciousness, something quite magical can be happening as well. I really like that. Nice, concise answer. Fantastic. And anyone that has meditated, I suppose, has experienced that, hasn't that, haven't they? That um, that kind of what's going on underneath, and, and there is normally a lot going on, whether that's good or bad, kind of chatter and, and things. But um, yes, and we'll perhaps dive into what that means, what's going on while we meditate during this conversation. So, could we move on to that then? You know, what is meditation, and what isn't meditation? Sure. Yeah. When I use the word meditation, I'm really talking about a specific practice that you are setting time aside for, which is not part of your day-to-day activities. So it's still quite a vague term because meditation is an umbrella term, really, that could uh, be any number of things, similar to how, going back to our exercise uh, analogy, similar to how exercise is a vague term. If somebody says, I'm going to exercise, I don't know whether they're going to do press-ups or sit-ups or Olympic weightlifting or train for a marathon. Mm-hmm. I just know there's some physical activity. Same with meditation, really. It could be a number of different practices all coming under that umbrella. But if you're setting time aside specifically to do it, then we could call that meditation, um, provided it, it is meditation that it is contemplative in some way. And it usually comes from some specific tradition, but it doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I do get quite a lot of people say to me, oh, well, walking my dog is my meditation <laughs> or swimming is my meditation. Yeah. To me, I would say um, that's not quite right. Um, 
or at least as a meditation teacher, that would make my life very complicated to accept those things as meditation. So that's how I like to separate it. But with that said, you definitely can bring meditative qualities to these everyday activities. And that's what mindfulness is. So mindfulness is interesting because it has both an informal and a formal practice option to it. You know, you could do meditation and you could do mindfulness in your meditation. And that's a sitting formal practice. Or if you want to do a walking practice, you can be mindful while you walk. And that could also be a formal practice. But also, if you wanted to, you could bring the qualities of mindfulness into your everyday life while you're just doing any normal activity, like washing the dishes or walking to the shop to buy something. And if you brought those qualities into it, it makes it meditative, but it's, uh, I wouldn't, I don't call that meditation. I just call that mindfulness. Just so eloquently put, I just, fantastic. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and this is this was my understanding as well. It's funny, I put something out on Twitter quite recently when I knew you were coming on the show. And so I, I put a little question out. Um, is there anything you'd like to ask about meditation? Um, and one one chap replied, um, he, and he asked a couple of questions that made me think of how I can adapt my questions for you. Um, but one of the questions was, um, if I haven't got time for meditation, can washing the dishes or going for a run, can that count as my meditation practice? And what you've just said was almost my exact reply. I said that uh, for my understanding, meditation is a, a separate practice that you set aside time to do. And uh, a mindfulness practice is how you kind of think about how you're moving throughout the day and, and, and um, doing your best to stay in the present moment and being very mindful of your, your actions and your words, that kind of thing. And another person chimed in and kind of commented and said I was wrong. And I'm completely open to being wrong on Twitter. You know, I've been wrong in the past and I'll be wrong in the future. That's absolutely fine. Um, but he said, no, that's wrong. Med meditation should be throughout the day. Meditation, you know, um, I think what he said was the sitting down with your eyes closed is like having the training wheels on. But actually, um, you know, what we're aiming for is to be meditative um, throughout the day, which I, I guess you're agreeing with as well, that we can take this um, and then it, it enriches our lives in so many different ways. But I was trying to get across what I think what you're trying to get across as well is that there's there's a specific practice that we can do, which is sitting down with our eyes closed. And I know there's much more to it than that. And, and perhaps you'll be able to explain later on in this conversation. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts about what that chap said. Um, it kind of rings true, I think, to... Um, you know, along with yoga, say a yoga practice that you're on the mat and you're doing the certain poses and you're focusing on your breath. And of course, there's yoga on the mat, but you also want to take that out into the wider world, don't you, for your friends, family, and the community to benefit. So I don't know, I, I, I realise I've just thrown a load of stuff out there, but is there anything <laughs> that you'd like to kind of comment on, on what I mentioned about, you know, my post on Twitter, etc.? Yeah, sure. So I think that person was kind of right in a sense. It's just that as a meditation teacher, I have to be a little careful not to push the idea that everything is meditation because I think people will end up shortchanging themselves by saying, well, rather than doing a normal sitting practice, I'm going to watch Netflix mindfully <laughs> and that'll be enough. And so I don't really want to water it down too much. So this is why I make the distinction. Mm -hmm. But it is, uh, I mean, one of my teachers said that at the beginning of the practice, meditation is something that you do in your day. And then as your practice evolves later on, your day is something that happens inside your meditation practice. And I think that's what the person on Twitter was trying to point to is that as your life becomes more meditative, <laughs> so will all of your actions eventually. So uh, I think we're all talking about the same thing from different angles. Yeah, exactly. And I think this person that commented seemed to have a lot of experience. And I think I, actually he'd been out to the Far East and had learned um, a, a lot from teachers and then come and, and brought it back. And so I, com I completely understand. But I think maybe I'm looking at it from the point of view of someone who is trying to uh, get you know the information and the practice out there to people that are not familiar with it. And so surely we 
well, not surely, you tell me what you think, but is it a case of, you know, we, we've got to start somewhere and it, it can't be like that we can click our fingers and walk around in this blissed out state, completely present. For me, the, the sitting down, the eyes closed, the meditation practice is what has started me on that journey and meant that I am more calm, less reactive, um, less stressed and anxious, I, I think, because I've set aside time to practice. And then that's been the kind of, the, you know, that, that set me off on the, on the path, this, this journey um, to then, I think, improving my life because of this practice. Absolutely. That's how I see it. The eyes closed formal practice is where you'll make the big strides. Um, but working it into your everyday life just helps you come at it from another angle as well. So um, is, it is interesting, but also you need to bear in mind that with, we're talking about mindfulness here, really. Right. And so other styles of meditation, like the one I teach with mantra, it doesn't have this informal practice component. So when I teach people how to do mantra meditation, you can only really do that sitting comfortably with your eyes closed with a little bit of time set aside where you're not going to be disturbed. You can't do mantra practice the way I'm teaching it uh, while you're, say, walking to the shop. <laughs> because really what you're trying to do is um, use the mantra in such a specific way that you lose your sense of self and you really don't want to be losing that while you're crossing a busy road or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So the world of meditation is much, much bigger than mindfulness, but because mindfulness is the most popular thing, people tend to talk about meditation when really they mean mindfulness meditation. Right. Interesting. Right. So I think we're really kind of clearing some things up now and you're certainly asking, um, answering some um, questions that I had and kind of reassuring me in, in my um, perspective. So that's great. I think now's a good time to talk about your journey to discovering the power of meditation. I want to hear about that and I want to hear about the, um, yeah, your your the, the teachings that you've received and how you've now brought them back um, to the work that you're doing now. But maybe if we can start with, you know, how you discovered the power of meditation. Yeah, sure. It's a funny beginning to this story, really, <laughs> because I often say that this story starts back in my sort of just before I was 20 and into my 20s. I was really into the nightclubbing and DJing scene. <laughs> and it's a pretty fun scene to be in. Uh, lots of late nights, lots of drinking, lots of really uh, not taking care of yourself. Let's put it that way. And if you do that for long enough over a, a number of years, you can wind up with some mental health problems. And that's what happened to me in my early 20s. I really started to suffer from insomnia and bouts of depression as well. And just as a byproduct, I guess, of being English and the way I was brought up, it never would have occurred to me to go and see a therapist or anything like that. Um, bear in mind, I'm 42 now, so we're going back quite a long way here. And um, so I started to Google around, look for ways to deal with these problems, insomnia and depression. And I kept finding meditation coming up listed as a clinically, you know, scientifically proven way to deal with these things. And it just appealed to me because I thought, well, I can do this on my own. Nobody needs to know about it because, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, shame of having to admit that there's a problem, you know, in your 20s. Mm -hmm. And um, also I had been to Asia. So I'd seen I'd been to these temples and I'd seen these monks. And although I was kind of quite against religion, I did. They did seem peaceful. And there was something about that that appealed to me. And so, yeah, I just thought I'd give it a go, really. I thought if this works, then that will solve my problem. So I started out with guided audio meditation CDs and that kind of thing. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Bear in mind, all I really wanted was to get to sleep. And it didn't really work very well most of the time. And it might work one night, but not the next. And so I went looking for what else was around. And after trying a few things, I booked myself onto a mindfulness course and went through that process and it was really useful i really learned some i learned some really interesting ways of understanding my inner experience and how i relate to myself and my thoughts and my feelings my emotions however once that course was over 
it didn't stick for some reason. My first sort of big contact with mindfulness didn't stick and it didn't solve my insomnia problem. So I carried on drinking and all of the rest of it. But I was, I got enough out of that course to think that there's something in this meditation. I just haven't quite got it yet. So I went looking for what else was possibly on offer. And I found somebody uh, close to where I used to live in uh, West London who was teaching something called Vedic meditation. And I thought, okay, I'll go along to this. It's just four days and it's four two hour sessions, one after the one after the other. And uh, I thought, okay, let's, let's give it a try. And it promised me on the website that it was going to be all scientific and all the rest of it, not spiritual. And that was important to me at the time because I was very against all anything spiritual. So I went along and I got a bit of a shock at first because next thing I know, I'm in a room and there's a picture of an Indian guru on the wall and there's a woman dressed in in white sort of clothes, singing a Sanskrit song and lighting candles and there's incense and all sorts. And I thought, what am I doing here? You know, and we all had to bow, bow to the guru who didn't know who he was. But anyway, once all that was over, we settled down and she explained uh, what this meditation was. She gave me a mantra, which is a soothing sound with a vibrational quality. And you hold that delicately in the mind. And it has this very uh, interesting effect on the mind body system. Mm-hmm. And after four days of practicing and learning the fundamental aspects of this meditation, my insomnia was just cured, completely cured. I went home one of the nights and I thought, I'm so tired. I'm just going to go to bed at like 9 PM. And I slept right the way through the night, woke up feeling amazing the next day. And I just thought, I don't know what this is. (laughs) I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to keep this up. I must admit, I was questioning it up until that point because it just seemed too simple, too easy. And, you know, I just had my doubts about all of this spiritual side of it, but it just worked so well. I just thought, right, that's it. I'm going to keep it up. So I did that 20 minutes twice a day, every day for about three years, probably Mm. without really thinking about meditation. Apart from that, I just got my two 20 minute hits in. And what I found was my mental and physical health was so transformed that I started to wonder what's going to happen if I did more of this? What would happen if I went on a retreat? Because I'm no longer doing it to solve my mental health problems. That's kind of sorted. Now I want to know, well, what is this really for? What's going to happen if you did, you know, long periods of it? So I booked myself onto my first retreat and that was a completely new experience. I mean, uh, a whole weekend with a bunch of strangers was a bit anxiety inducing to me (laughs) at the time, especially with no alcohol or anything like that, (laughs) you know, kind of make things a bit easier. But honestly, it was just incredible. It was uh, a meditation retreat where it does actually mix a little bit of yoga and breath work uh, and then meditation with a mantra. So you you are moving and meditating quite a lot, but you do a lot of practice. I think on that retreat, we were doing four hours of practice in the morning, solidly without breaks, and then four hours in the afternoon, solidly without breaks. So it was quite intense. But after that retreat, which was only three days, I just came away and was like, wow, I never felt like this. The whole world feels completely different to me now. And so I really that was a real catalyst for me to want to do more advanced courses to even try different styles of meditation, Mm -hmm. even more intense meditation retreats, like a 10 day silent retreat where you're meditating, you know, in a very rigid posture, 12 hours a day, tried all that kind of thing. And slowly but surely I just started to come to the place where I thought maybe I'll do uh, my first teacher training course and get a taste of it and see whether I could actually teach people this and the teacher training just took it to a new level again. So, um, (laughs) well, as you know, you're a teacher, so you you (laughs) must understand that like, yeah, once you get into the teaching side and you start to understand the nuts and bolts of these things, a a real fascination opened up and it's just gone from there. Really. Um, I've, I mainly teach at the moment, uh, mantra meditation because I find it's the quickest and easiest way I can have a really profound impact on people. But I also teach mindfulness as well. And I find the two complement each other. They're not um, opposites in any way. One 
your your mantra practice will deepen your mindfulness practice and mindfulness does the same for the other one so um so yeah it just depends on a, on the person what they're drawn to but i'm starting to move towards giving people a number of options that they can use rather than just one specific practice interesting so quite a journey from nightclub goer to meditation teacher <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it happened quite slowly over quite a few years yeah, yeah but um but yeah this is where we've ended up yeah interesting and i like what you said at the the start about that you tried different practices and maybe they didn't you know they were doing something but maybe they didn't quite work for you and then you found one that really made a difference and really um you could notice the effect that it had i think that is that perhaps an important point to make that there are different styles and different avenues and people might want to explore those different avenues for meditation guided meditations you know all these different things is that a good point to make or what do you think Absolutely. Yeah. Because I originally started with mindfulness. It didn't work for me. Then I moved on to mantra. And because the mantra had such a powerful effect on my mind and body, when I went back to mindfulness, suddenly it all made sense. I'd just been struggling a bit too much with it before. Mantra taught me how to be very at ease and uh, effortless with my mind. And then suddenly uh, mindfulness became a complete joy. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, a lot of these things cross over. So if a person is listening to this and they think, well, I've tried to meditate, but it doesn't work for me, please don't give up there. Just try something else because a lot of the people who do my course, they consider themselves failed meditators. They say, you know, I tried the app, but I couldn't stick to it. I even went and did a retreat, but I left after three days, you know, and then they learn my technique and they're like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure other people do learn my technique and they like it, but then they go off and they find something else that suits them more. It wouldn't surprise me if that happens. But the most important thing is just to dip your toe in the water, try something out and uh, see what happens. Yeah. And I think, again, we can make those comparisons with exercise, can't we? That there are very complex uh, exercises that we can do and there are very simple exercises that we can do. And it might be that we kind of flip between the two of them. You know, the simple sometimes can be the best and really effective. But then of other times, like you said, you might want to dip your toe into the more complicated exercises. You know, I go to the gym and sometimes I do some crazy things, you know, jumping up in the air and all this different stuff and muscle ups and stuff. Whereas actually, you know, it's the simple exercises that I do consistently that, that kind of keep me fit and healthy. And I suppose the same might be said for meditation. And then the other thing that you mentioned about you know, trying different things and, and and not being put off. If we use the exercise comparison again, it would be like, I suppose, going to the gym and then thinking, well, I'm never going to exercise because I don't enjoy that or or trying um, a running club and saying, no, I just hated it. I don't like running, so I'm not going to exercise. And it'd be like, oh, that would be such a shame, wouldn't it? Because there is some form of it that you will I guess, respond to or something that will resonate with you and and have the effect that you're looking um, for. Would you agree with that? What, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you an overview, if you like, of the different kinds of meditation. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's loads of them. There's like thousands. So what I'll give you is the four most scientifically studied types of meditation, if you like. And then um, I think people will kind of get an idea of the different avenues so the one that comes up most often, uh, the one that you find in the meditation apps and things like that would be focused attention. And a classic focused attention would be sitting there, pay attention to the breath. The mind wanders off. You notice it's wandered off. You bring it back and you stay with the breath a bit longer. That's how it starts anyway. Right. And um, that is the classic kind of meditation that everybody thinks of as meditation, really. And of course, you wouldn't have to use the breath. You could use anything. The sound of the birds singing, uh, the sound of the rain falling would be very pleasant. Equally, if you sat there and paid attention to a car alarm, <laughs> it might not be very pleasant, but it would um, still be the same thing. It doesn't really matter what the focus object is, um, as long as you're paying attention in this non-judgmental way. Now, another style of meditation, number two, is open monitoring. Now, with this one, you wouldn't be trying to stay with any particular focus object. You could pretty much just um, sit there and do nothing and just see what comes up. 
and let's say you notice some sensation in your feet, then you would note that, okay, I'm having a feeling experience in my feet. And you'd stay with that for a while. And then you'd hear um, a bird outside and, and you'd recognize that's a hearing experience. And you'd note that. Uh, then some mental chatter might come up, you know, something that you've got to do later. And you'll notice, oh, okay, I'm having an internal, I'm having an internal hearing experience. So you can have experiences which are inner and outer, and you pretty much just pay attention to how it's all coming together. And that's, uh, can be quite relaxing, but it's more interesting that than that. It helps you kind of untangle what makes up your experience of being you because you break it up into your various different sensory experiences. And that stops you from being lost in the drama of life quite often because when you are going through something difficult, you'll really most of the time be trapped in a kind of whirlpool of internal talk that's spiraling out of control, physical sensations which are making you tense up and tighten, possibly even images in your mind that are coming up. If you can pull all that apart and recognize, okay, I'm having an internal seeing experience, an internal hearing experience, and a feeling experience in my chest, you take the sting out of it because you pull yeah. the story apart. So I, I really love open monitoring, and that's one of the um, techniques that I teach quite often. You might hear it called other names like choiceless awareness or um, see, hear, feel. That's what I tend to call it. Um, okay, so number three is loving kindness meditation. And this is a good one. It's where you would typically you would visualize somebody and then you would send them loving kind intentions by way of an affirmation, something along the lines of may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be free from harm, may you live your life with ease. This would be a classic Buddhist loving kindness meditation. And yeah, you would essentially be exercising the part of your brain, the part of your consciousness that is capable of generating loving, kind feelings. And then it has been shown scientifically that if you do that, you can literally change and enlarge the part of your brain that is reflecting loving kindness from your consciousness. So, you know, some people might say the part of your brain that's in charge of the loving kindness, you know, and equally the part of your brain that's in charge of fear, the amygdala, may even become less active and even shrink with mm -hmm. using lots of this meditation. So it does seem to have a really powerful effect. And you can also turn that back around on yourself. You can visualize yourself and you can give those affirmations to yourself. Therefore, um, a form of self-love <laughs> that happens to be thousands of years old. Um, and also, if you were a Buddhist, this where this comes from, you would even practice this on enemies and people you don't get along with. Uh, much harder but it's a very good way of recognizing that despite that you have problems with people, all beings everywhere just want the same thing, which is to be happy. Um, so yeah, I've, I don't practice that a huge amount, but I, I remember doing a lot of it on teacher training and um, yeah, I really kind of enjoyed the experience. Yeah, I can imagine for the people who practice it a lot, it's very powerful. Mm. Um, and then finally, in number four in the list is what scientifically would be called automatic self-transcending, but I just call it deep meditation. And this is the meditation that is a classical kind of mantra meditation from India. It's a little bit different from the rest because usually you would have to learn it from a teacher and they would give you a mantra, which is a soothing sound with a vibrational quality. And you hold this mantra in your mind in a very specific way, which is as effortlessly and as delicately as possible. And the idea is that the mantra kind of charms the mind. It's interesting enough for the mind to become um, kind of attached to it and for thoughts to fall away. But you also hold it so delicately that the mantra itself can fall away. And that's what leaves you with this inner stillness and inner silence, which is what I say is one of the benefits of doing that kind of meditation. Um, I can't guarantee in a stillness and silence every time because there are some blockages that come up while you do it and you have to work those through. But it is known for one being a meditation that can quite quickly transport you into a, a place of stillness and silence. Incidentally, the word mantra is a Sanskrit word that means mind vehicle. Man means mind. 
trap means vehicle. So the mantra is your vehicle for moving your mind from the surface level of consciousness into the deeper state. Um, so that's just four types of meditation. There are loads more, but those are the ones that come up quite often in scientific studies. Oh, fascinating. And I've, I've never sat and listened to someone explain those different types of meditation and feel like oh, I'm starting to get this now. <laughs> um, you know, you started off by talking about focused attention. And I think that's, that, that was my understanding of meditation. And that's kind of one that I, I think of practice and one that I will share and post about on social media that focusing on the breath, noticing when you get distracted and, and coming back. But then to, to hear so much more about the other three types is really interesting. You talked about the open monitoring and those kind of noticing, um, you know, noticing a sound or an a feeling or an experience and then labeling them. Is that an important part of it? I, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I'm just curious giving it a label. I, I've heard of that in the past, that when you notice that you're planning or you notice that you're looking back at the, the past and, and you know, um, kind of going over things that have already happened, is that an important part of it, to give it a label or, or is that just kind of extra? I don't know. <laughs> um, the label is quite useful, especially for beginners, because it sets up this um, situation where it sh keeps you in the witnessing mode. Right. So if your internal chatter is talking about something that you've got to do later today, you don't want to get sucked into that. You want to just witness that. So you might just use the label here and you can just repeat the label here as that's going on. And then suddenly your attention moves to uh, feeling in your stomach and rather than getting wrapped up in the story of, oh, I hope that's not a problem, you know, or maybe I should go and take some pills, you can witness that. And using a label can keep you in that witnessing mode by saying feel, you could because uh, you're having a feeling experience. Um, so at the higher levels of meditation, you can drop the labels, but labels are definitely useful in the early days. And especially if you're trying to do something where you're, being tuned in to your entire sensory experience inside and out, then labels are really useful because otherwise your mind can wander. But what you're trying to do with the labels is pick something to focus on because it's rare that just one sensory thing will happen at once. You'll quite often be having a seeing experience, a feeling experience at the same time. So you use the label to pick out what you're going to focus on momentarily. And then for just it could be just for even a few seconds, you really try and soak your awareness into whatever that is. And then when you, when your attention starts to naturally move away from that onto something else, you can say, okay, now we'll, we'll shift to this other thing and I'll momentarily soak my awareness into whatever this other thing is. And so for this to be true mindfulness and to really work the way I would teach it, you'd want to infuse the experience with three qualities. The first one is concentration. Now, I wouldn't concentrate too hard in terms of like, you know, straining or making it difficult. It's a very gentle kind of witnessing, but it is a kind of you are locked in and you are paying attention on purpose. So there's concentration, there's sensory clarity. So it's not just a case of staying with the object of meditation, whatever it is, like say the breath. It's not just a case of staying with it, but you're trying to really experience it. So for the average person who starts meditating on the breath, they think of the breath as an object and the goal is to just stay with it and not get distracted. But once you can stay with it, then you can become more absorbed in it. And you realize that the breath, the breath isn't even really a thing. What you're really meditating on is the sensations that arise as the body breathes. And you can become more and more absorbed and get more and more clarity on those sensations. So whatever it is that's coming up in your experience, try and be as sensorially clear as you can in that few seconds or however long you stay with it. And that will make your mindful awareness much stronger. And the third one would be equanimity, which is a kind of um, a gentle matter of factness, a kind of a calmness, which is an inner calmness. So you're not really being pushed or pulled or swayed by your inner experience. For example, if you're meditating and you find that you have some pain in your legs, well, how about rather than changing your position 
or getting all stressed out about and worried about it. If you can stay calm and just open to that experience rather than trying to distract yourself, go into the, the discomfort and just be completely open to it and let that those sensations that are arising that you're labeling as uncomfortable, if you just let those move and kind of dance their dance, you will eventually have the insight that the pain isn't really what you thought it was. It's really a combination of pressure, heat, and tingling, most probably. Mm -hmm. And when you pull those things away and you allow yourself to sit with them, you'll find that the discomfort, at least to some degree, falls away because you're, you've sort of acclimatized to it in some way and you'll get used to it. Now, equanimity is an amazing thing because once you get really good with being equanimous in meditation, it crosses over into your normal life outside of meditation. You'll be, you know, in a stressful situation, but you're so used to not being pushed and pulled and bullied by your thoughts and emotions mm -hmm. that you'll find yourself being non-reactive uh, and calm and able to witness even in difficult situations. So, um, yeah, if you want to bring mindful awareness into any situation, it's concentration, sensory clarity, and equi equanimity all working together at the same time. Oh, man, this is so valuable. And I think that's where the, the power in it lies, isn't it? Like you said, taking it out there and going through a... Uh, stressful experience and realizing no i'm i can kind of be in control here and like you said you don't need to get pushed and pulled by your by your thoughts really interesting um now maybe we can talk then about the the specific type that of meditation that you teach because you um you talk about that um you teach people to access deep inner stillness and silence using an effortless meditation technique from the Himalayas. So I, I want to know more about this. I think you have touched on it a, a little, but is there anything that you'd like to kind of expand on, you know, the, the, the specific technique that, that you teach from the Himalayas and what, do, what does that look like? Sure, yeah. So when I teach it, it's um, done over four 90-minute sessions over four days. So even though you're still going to work and living your life while you go through it, I do like people to try and treat it almost like a little bit of a, a process that they're going to go through over those four days, like almost a bit of a retreat. If you could treat it like a retreat and go and, you know, be on your own for those four days, then that's perfect. But most people do have to <laughs> go to work and do their lives and do their jobs and things. Um, but I also ask people to try and cut out alcohol and caffeine over those days and to really take it seriously. And the reason is, is that if I can get them to have quite a big experience of, like I say, inner stillness and silence, or maybe a very blissful experience, or just any kind of inner quietness, or just something that is a, a shift in consciousness, then it's highly likely that that will be enough to get them interested and motivated to carry on. So, um, so I like to do it that way. And usually the way it works is that on day one, I give you the mantra and I teach you how to use it. So it's using this soothing sound that has a vibrational quality. You hold it in your mind in this delicate way. And these mantras are thousands of years old. They come from an ancient spiritual tradition. Um, and so, you know, people have been using these as meditation objects in order to move into these altered states of consciousness for a very long time. So they do seem to work, although scientifically I could not explain <laughs> exactly why. Um, but yeah, it does seem to have a very powerful effect. And because you hold the mantra in this way, that's very effortless and very delicate, it teaches you to be very at ease with the mind. You, you, will definitely experience thoughts and feelings and emotions because the mantra meditation will allow you to relax quite deeply. And when you do relax the body, what happens is old unconscious um, material that you've repressed may sometimes come up. So you may re-experience old memories. Some of, Sometimes they won't be very comfortable memories. Uh, sometimes old emotions may come up. And what I'm teaching people to do is to allow that process to happen to experience it so you can kind of feel what you didn't feel first time round, and then let it go. And it all kind of happens in the background. So you're not actually engaging with these thoughts and emo emotions that come up. You're really engaging with the mantra and all of this internal kind of cleansing is going on in the background. And so that's why sometimes I'll teach somebody 
and I'll say, how was your meditation? And they'll say, well, it was the strangest thing. I was meditating and I felt like I was going into a bit of a deep place. And then out of nowhere, I just started crying. And I don't know why, and I don't know what it was about, um, but just tears were coming from my eyes. And I'll say, oh, well, yeah, you were, you were letting something go. You were holding on to something in your body that you'd repressed previously in the past. And for some reason, now because of the meditation, you felt um, your, your body, mind, system felt safe enough to bring that up and to let it go. And that's what you experienced. Sometimes it might not be an emotion. It might be a memory. You know, you're meditating. You feel like you're going deep. Suddenly you come around and you think, God, I'm just re-experiencing an argument I had with my mum 10 years ago. Why is that in there? But it's your mind-body system going through this pro process of cleansing. And that's what the mantra meditation is for, really. So although it can give you this um, inner stillness and silence, really what I say it's for is it's for a cleansing old stress, old repressed emotions out of the system. And the more of that you can get rid of, the lighter you will feel in your life outside of meditation. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually meditate to have a really good experience, even quite <laughs> uncomfortable and heavy and difficult meditations have their purpose because they're helping you work through some old baggage that you're letting go. And then if you keep meditating over time, you'll get lighter and lighter and life will get easier and easier because you're just letting go. You're cleansing the stress and problems that are coming up in your everyday life. And you're also getting rid of your backlog of stress that you've been carrying around with you. And, um, I've found that's been incredibly powerful in my own life. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, you've kind of already answered this in some respects, I think, but if we're talking about some of the benefits that your students have experienced, I mean, you have touched on it, haven't you? You've talked about letting go of that, that past stress and, and things like that. But is there anything else that you could say about the, you know, the testimonials that you're given from students? They, if Once they have done a course with you and they've practiced meditation, what are some of the, the benefits that people enjoy? Uh, okay, well, I'll tell you my favorite thing. <laughs> when um, when I speak to people or I get messages from people who say unusual sounding things, for example, somebody said to me once, um, you know, I was walking to work this morning and I noticed this tree and I must have walked past this tree every day for the last three years and I never noticed it. And then today I was walking along, I saw it and I just had to stop and just just stare at it. And I just couldn't believe I'd never noticed it before. It was just so beautiful. It was just an incredible mesh of colors and shiny lights and, you know, reflection and shape and just, wow, I couldn't get over it. And I, I wanted to tell everybody around me, of course, nobody was interested in it, <laughs> but I was just like, wow, this is incredible. And they say, you know, what, what's happening to me? And I say, well, every day for 20 minutes, twice a day, you're teaching yourself to become deeply absorbed in this mantra. And you're holding this mantra so delicately that it's very, very subtle in the mind. And you're still becoming absorbed in this thing, very, very subtle thing, which is, you know, um, held effortlessly. And so now in your life outside of the meditation, you're finding it easy to become absorbed in things which just happen to charm your mind. This, In this case, it happens to be the tree. You're becoming more sensitive to the true sort of beauty and reality of it because you're no longer lost in your thoughts. You're not projecting into past and future. You're much more present. You're much more calm, much more relaxed and much more tuned into what's going on around you. And then when this caught your attention, you just became absorbed in it. And, um, you sort of were able to effortlessly pour your attention directly into it in the same way you might, you know, pour oil from a, olive oil container onto something, you know, it just direct and just hitting it and not spraying around all over the place. Uh, like, you know, an out of control hose pipe <laughs> kind of thing. And, um, when you do that, then even very, very ordinary things like a tree that you've seen every day for three years can suddenly just come to life. And I think I, I like this when people bring this up because it's fun to talk about, but it was also my experience. I was, somebody who was always looking to do the most crazy things just to get a high, you know, bungee jumping, skydiving, the clubbing, partying scene. 
And then suddenly after a while of doing this, just everything seemed really special and just the most ordinary things kind of came to life. And so, yeah, when people have that experience, it really lights me up because it reminds me of when I first had it. <laughs> and this is what we want to share, isn't it? The feeling calmer, feeling less stressed, but the actual joy of living. This is what we want, isn't it? People being present in the moment and you know, just going to kind of a HD vision of the world. Everything is clearer and more kind of vibrant. That's what we want. And I suppose we've just spent so long being told that our goal in life should be a six pack or a, a nice car or a big house. But those things pale in comparison, don't they, to being present and enjoying every moment of your life, which which absolutely we can we can achieve. And including meditation is one of the ways that we that we can go about that. And that kind of resonates with some of my experiences uh, as well. You know, I've had meditations where I have just been sat there and quite quickly, you know, within 30 seconds, just something has come over me where I, I described it as a bliss bomb, just like a, just a complete feeling of bliss, feeling so at peace, so happy. And I know to, maybe to some people listening might be thinking, oh, come on, you know, and rolling their eyes. But I mean, that that is what we can get. And surely that is, if, if I... If you can, if one can do something where they are sat down and it's free and it's just something that you have kind of practiced and then and then can achieve it, isn't that what we should all be aiming for? You know, I, I felt more at peace and more relaxed then than than if I'd have kind of gone to an expensive spa that cost two hundred pounds and got a massage. <laughs> I was way more relaxed just sat there doing that and uh, other experiences as well. That um, they just don't kind of compare to that feeling of just being sat there and. I don't know. I think growing up, maybe if I'd have looked ahead to see me at 35 years old now describing this, I'd be like, oh, come on, Sam, get a grip. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it just, it seems to be the, um, well, it's just that, that is my experience of it. And I just think so many, so many more people can access that, can't they? That feeling of complete contentment and, and calm. And that's what we want, I think. <laughs> Well, yeah, funnily enough, I do have like, uh, you know how I like to make these lists. I do have a kind of a model that, that will explain that quite nicely, actually, um, which I call the, the three stages of happiness. Mm. So you've got number one, which is happiness, which I would call surface level happiness. So that's the kind of happiness we get from uh, when we buy a new outfit or get a new car or a new house or a new partner or whatever the thing is. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with surface level happiness. We should mm. enjoy, you know, these things when they come along and that, you know, have no reservations about that, you know, enjoy life. It's to be lived. Um, the problem with those things though, is they don't tend to last. So you get the promotion, it's great, but a, a month later, you know, you're sick of that job now, you want the next promotion or, you know, the car, the shiny car no longer interests you as much as it used to. So Surface level happiness is great, but you don't want that to be your only kind of happiness that exists in your life. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to number two, which I call deep happiness. Now with deep happiness, this is the one that spiritual traditions tend to talk about. It's the happiness that arises through having, you know, working on your character, good morals, ethics, being a kind person, taking care of yourself and others. Um, when Jordan Peterson, he's quite famous at the moment, he says, don't chase happiness, chase meaning, um, mm. responsibility. Well, really what he's saying is you will get a more robust, deeper, more long lasting happiness if you go down that road. That's what he's saying. So this falls into the category of what I would call deep happiness. But then there's a third one, which isn't really talked about very often, which I would call pure happiness, which is what you were just talking about, <laughs> which is the pure happiness of your own inner being which needs nothing from the outside mm -hmm. to complement it or to trigger it or to make anything happen at all and you can turn your attention inwards you can take that inner journey and you can touch albeit briefly um your true essence what you truly are deep underneath thoughts feelings emotions and sensations and when you spend some time in that place when you touch that place as you've discovered, you, you know, quite by accident, probably a lot of people will discover mm -hmm. that there is an inherent 
bliss, joy, happiness, fulfillment, love, which is just innate. It's just yeah, simply yeah. part of what you are and it's built into the system and you can turn inwards and access it all the time. And I have to say, this was a, a completely accidental discovery by me. I just wanted to cure my insomnia. So to, to, to stumble across the fact that there's this endless well of everything I was looking for right there, and I didn't actually need to go out into the world and do anything special to get it, was um, something that captured my imagination so much that that's how I've ended up teaching this and talking about this. This is what it all really comes down to for me. Yeah, exactly. You, you're the whole perspective changes, isn't it, when you realise that, that your your happiness is not dependent on outside events and outside you know, objects and material things. It, it, it is within and we can tap into something. And so, I mean, people listening, I, I invite anyone to listen to this podcast, but it is aimed at educators, it is aimed at teachers and TAs. And of course, all of these um, benefits that you would describe we would love for teachers, TAs, whatever position in the school to be enjoying, wouldn't we? And so have you got any tips for them? Any, any kind of a place to, to get started? You know, what, what should they do if they are now feeling a bit more intrigued? Or maybe they had tried meditation in the past and then kind of have, have, have let their practice drop off and, and that's fine, but then they may be inspired now to bring it back. Are there any just ideas that you'd like to, to put out there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So if someone is interested in this stuff, um, if you're not in, in a position at this point to get a teacher or do a retreat or something like that, that's absolutely fine. If you wanted to simply calm your nervous system down, the fastest way to do it would be through breathing. And if you were to just breathe, take long, deep breaths in and out and just extend the outward breath by one or two seconds then you will trigger your body into relaxation. So this is a kind of, you know, pressing the panic button. <laughs> if anybody's listening to this now thinking they're feeling terribly anxious and stressed, the quickest and fastest way to change your state would be go to the breathing. Breathe in five seconds, breathe out for six. Then when the breath gets deeper, breathe in six seconds, breathe out for seven. And while you do that, keep your uh, gaze unfocused as if you're trying to look at the whole room all at once but in a very relaxed way, not straining or trying too hard. And you'll probably find within five minutes, you can calm yourself down and get yourself into a good place. But that really is just the first step yeah. uh, in the right direction. Um, but yeah, if anybody needs to pull the emergency cord, that's probably the fastest and easy way, easiest way to do it. Um, I would say that there's probably a lot of good meditation apps around these days, although I'm, I've not looked at one for years, so I'm not sure what they're like. But the one thing I would say is a problem there is that you can't really get any direct feedback. So when you're ready to move on to um, something a bit deeper, having a teacher is a good idea because you really want to be able to tell somebody your specific experience and for them to either reassure you that it's fine or to correct you and say, hey, look, um, you're going to waste a lot of time if you carry on going down that road. <laughs> mm. um, so it depends what level people are at and how serious they want to get. But I know in my own experience, um, having classes and teachers, and then later on, I've done three rounds of teacher training and I've learned so much from those people that I, I wouldn't be able to sit here and talk like this if I hadn't had contact with people who are far more further along the road than me and far more, um, practiced and just more eloquent than I am. So, um, so yeah, having somebody that you can go to, um, work with, that's been the biggest thing that's helped me. So I, I would definitely recommend it if people are in the position for it. Um, and I'll just give you one more thing. Okay. For a person who might be listening to this, trust me, you don't have to believe your thoughts. <laughs> if you're suffering with what lots of negative self-talk and thoughts that are really, really dragging you down. There are ways of working where you don't even need to switch them off, but you do need to find a way to be able to see through them, to recognize them for what they really are, which is completely hollow, insignificant, transitory events, mental phenomena. 
and not to be taken seriously or believed all the time. That's not to say you don't believe any of your thoughts, but it is nice to be able to pick and choose uh, which ones you indulge and which ones you can just let move on. That becomes a bit of a superpower in life outside of meditation when you can do that. You're yeah, nodding your like, head, so I think you agree. <laughs> no, I definitely agree. And I like the way you put it as a superpower. Um, it's a bit like what we mentioned earlier, but yeah, when you you just your perspective changes, I think, when you come to the realization, oh, I am not my thoughts. I don't have to trust every thought that I um that comes into my head. And I think I spent most I have spent up to this point uh, most of my life thinking that I need to believe every thought that comes into my head, whether that's an angry thought or a jealous thought or whatever thought it is. And yeah, it's a game changer, isn't it? When you yeah, this is just a thought. Really, um, just amazing stuff, amazing stuff. And um, I think what you said about the teacher makes a lot of sense. Uh, a bit like um, a yoga practice, we can follow free YouTube videos all day long, can't we? And, and that's absolutely fine. That's how I got into yoga was just following five, 10 minute videos in the morning. But it doesn't compare to then going to a yoga class and having someone guide you, um, not just in the poses and correcting my postures and things, but actually leading me, um, guiding me through specific kind of um, yoga meditations and breath work and stuff. That's just a, a whole different ball game. So I love the fact that you said, you know, if it's within your means, we completely understand that, don't we? If it's within your means and you and you can. Um, afford a teacher or go on a retreat, then it, then it's really powerful, isn't it? Brilliant. Um, and kind of, the, so the, the last question, I guess I'm going to, to throw at you. Um, we've talked about teachers and just the general public as well, enjoying these benefits of meditation, but what about children? Um, do, do you think children should be taught to meditate? And if you do, what might that look like in schools? Um, yeah, so I definitely think they should, but you need to be a little bit careful with it. So right. the kind of meditation that I teach, because it does come from an ancient spiritual tradition in the East, and a fair bit of that has been stripped back to make it something I can easily teach to Westerners, it still comes with some little, you know, spiritual bits and bobs like the mantras and things like that. And I think you might, un unless the the parents were absolutely on board with it and fine with it, um, then you wouldn't want to teach that to a whole school. Um, so yeah, you'd need to be a little bit careful. There's a lot of people who learn that kind of meditation and then they get their kids to learn it. And that's absolutely fine then because everybody's in on it and everybody understands what they're getting into. And in those cases, what normally happens, I don't teach children, but I know people who do, and they normally teach children um, based on their age is the number of minutes that they meditate for. So they give kids a mantra and they say, right, you're seven, so you meditate for seven minutes. And they teach them how to use the mantra in the same way you teach an adult. Friends of mine who've taught children have said it's actually easier to teach children because they just do what they're told and they don't question it. They just think it's a game and they just play the game without wondering whether or not it's going to work or being invested in it in that way. Um, so I find that quite funny. Um, but I do think you could teach children, like a whole school of children in big groups to meditate quite easily, as long as you stripped out any sort of secrecy around mantras or any um, esoteric bits and pieces like that. So there's no reason why you couldn't get uh, a whole, you know, hall full of school kids and have them sit quietly with their eyes closed and either follow yeah. their breath or learn how to do see, hear, feel, or even repeat something that is like a mantra, like a calming word, like the word calm or over and over again, something like that. Um, and teaching kids to do that would be absolutely revolutionary, I'm sure, because um, even in, in my life, it was just such a powerful experience, just learning to be able to sit with myself and soothe myself with a, mm -hmm. with a technique for kids nowadays, you know, with social media, with video games, with so much craziness, I mean, it's a different world now. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine it's much, much harder to grow up in these current times. So meditation will be even more needed than it was back in my day. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It's something that I've kind of 
I've thought a lot about, um, I, I have done activities with, with the whole school, uh, my whole school, but kind of on a very basic level. Um, I suppose what you would describe as that focused attention meditation, just focusing on our, on our breath. We, we've, we've kind of dabbled in a bit of that because I think that does seem to be a nice kind of on ramp onto this stuff, like showing children, Oh yeah, I can just pause and I can focus on my breath. And, Oh, what? And I always say to them, you know, how do you feel now? And just so often they say, well, I, I feel calmer now, Mr. Hart or I just feel a bit more relaxed or um, quite often the children say I feel more ready for the day and it's kind of like well wow if we can do something in a minute or two that gives children access to that then surely we should be talking about it but I completely understand what you're saying about how it's a there are some murky waters there, aren't there? And we've got to be a little bit careful and, and think about it. It can't just be like, right, everyone, you've got to meditate now. Let's do 30 minutes. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. that, that won't quite work, will it? <laughs> yeah, you'd have to start small. But then I think yeah. once they get it, they'd be able to do it themselves when, when they need it. And yeah. if they can take it home to their parents, then who knows what could be the knock-on effect of that. It would be um, incredibly beneficial, I think. Yeah, yeah revolutionary, like you said. <laughs> okay, right. Jimmy, thank you so much for for joining me. Um, so much stuff in there. Uh, I can't believe that it's coming up to an hour now. I just think it's absolutely flown by because I've just been kind of transfixed on everything you've been saying. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Before I let you go, there's a, a couple of things I want to ask. Um, one is the kind of the teach song question that I ask every guest that comes onto the um, onto the show, and that is, what's the one lesson that you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? Oh, I think it would have been to develop equanimity so like we've been talking about earlier if you can learn to find a way of relating to your inner experience so that you're not pushed and pulled and bullied by your inner thoughts feelings and emotions then life becomes a lot easier and yeah learning to be able to step outside of that sort of inner world <laughs> is, is very very helpful and it's strange that it's that we, you know, we're not taught when we're younger to do something like that because mm. it's what I, I come across every single day is adults who are struggling with life because they haven't managed to, well, they've just not been taught, told that that's even an option. Um, bear in mind when I use this idea of equanimity, so not being pushed or pulled, it, it might conjure up the idea of being detached. And you, there can be a kind of detachment if you want there to be, but it doesn't mean that you won't be able to act out in the, in the real world. Mm. It's really just to do with your relationship with your sensory experience. But it doesn't mean that if somebody's, you know, bullying you, you just go, okay, well, I don't feel it because I'm equanimous. You can, yeah. it just means that you free up the inner energy that's going to normally get all tangled up and stressed out. You can free that up and then you can act more efficiently in the outside world because you're not fighting the problem outside and inside. You're only fighting the problem outside. Right. Interesting. So yeah, developing equanimity through any means possible <laughs> will be the way. Yeah. Yeah. A great lesson. A great lesson. Awesome. And then one final thing, people that have, have tuned in and now want to get in touch with you, find out more about your courses and your teachings. Where can they, where can they get in touch? The easiest thing is to find me on Instagram. Just type in that meditation guy and uh, I will pop up. And if you want to find my website, uh, you can find it at delvedeep.com, D-E-L-V-E, D-E-E-P, delvedeep.com. And um, the thing I put most of my sort of work into on a daily basis is my emails. So you mm -hmm. can go and subscribe to my emails on the website if you like. Each one is just a little something out of my mind. Sometimes it's a little story about my own life or it's an old Zen story from thousands of years ago or it's a bit of science um, or it's just a tip or an insight or something I've learned recently from one of my students. And I keep them really short. You know, you it takes a minute or two to read them. But yeah, most of my um, sort of daily musings go there and that tends to be how people kind of get to know me over a period of time before uh, taking my courses yeah and that's been how I've got to know you recently um, I've connected with you a while back and then it's it, it's been great to to see those tips that you offer and you quite often kind of answer people's questions don't you about meditation and kind of and provide some insights just 
free over social media, which is which is fantastic, and it's definitely made it's been food for thought for me, and it's 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 brought up some stuff. So really useful. So listeners, go and connect with Jimmy for sure. <laughs> right, thank you again. Um, um, I'm really looking forward to putting this episode out there, and I'm looking forward to staying in touch as well. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's been a great chat. Cheers. So what did you think? My eyes were opened up so much to the many new perspectives on meditation. And I think this conversation with Jimmy has really given me some food for thought about my practice. Now, both Jimmy and I would love to hear from you if this is something that has had an impact on your life. Um, Or perhaps from this conversation, you're inspired to give meditation a try. It would be great to know what you took away from the conversation. And if you have any questions, um, you can also get in touch, of course. If you did enjoy the episode, please share with friends, family and colleagues who you think will be interested. And I'd really appreciate it if you took a couple of seconds to follow and rate the show. Uh, and that will really you know, help me spread the word to more educators. Thank you for tuning in and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.